Trump, 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 Trump. Donald Trump is dangerous, but as horrible and grotesque as he is, Donald Trump is not as dangerous as this guy, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis just reelected as the 46th governor of Florida. That's right. He won by a landslide. He, before being governor, was a congressman representing Florida's 6th congressional district. He has a degree from Yale, graduated magna cum laude. And then from Yale, he went off to Harvard Law School and got a Harvard Law degree. While attending Harvard, he enlisted and served in the Iraq War. He rose to lieutenant commander and received a bronze star while serving as a JAG officer in the Navy. He was stationed both in Iraq. He didn't see any fighting. He was a JAG officer. And then he got stationed in Guantanamo Bay. Ron DeSantis had a job as a JAG officer in Guantanamo Bay to guarantee detainees were given and read their rights under the Geneva Conventions. While there, while he was in Gitmo, our military worked with the CIA to waterboard and torture those very same detainees in direct violation of those very same Geneva Conventions that Ron DeSantis was to make sure were obeyed. Ron DeSantis, age 44, still married to the same woman and has three daughters. With the Republican New Hampshire primary less than a year away, a new University of New Hampshire poll shows Ron DeSantis leading Donald Trump in New Hampshire by 12 points. But every single national poll shows Trump leading DeSantis by anywhere between 5 to 26 points. It's Trump versus DeSantis. Nobody else comes close. Not Haley, not Nikki Haley, not uh, Mike Pence. It's Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump. And while nationally Trump leads DeSantis by a large margin, there is a distinct possibility that once states like Ohio and South Carolina and New Hampshire start vetting DeSantis in the primaries, and depending on how DeSantis holds up during the debates, that could be interesting, Ron DeSantis could find a pathway to the nomination. And I think, I fear, I'd like to know what you think and fear, I think somehow, if somehow he gets the nomination and he gets elected, Ron DeSantis would be far more dangerous than Donald Trump because Ron DeSantis is not a clown. What do you think? What, what would you rather see? Biden running against DeSantis or Trump? Well, I'd rather see Bernie running against DeSantis and Trump. Not sure that's going to happen. So what would you like to see? Who would you like to see as the Republican nominee? Who do you think will be easier to beat? Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? Who do you think is a bigger threat to our democracy if elected? Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? On today's show, I'm going to propose that I think 
Donald Trump is the devil we know, and that Ron DeSantis might be a bigger threat to democracy. Ron DeSantis can be a much bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump. Not sure. Would love to know what you think, so leave a comment in the comment section down below. My regular listeners know that I read all the comments. I don't respond to all of them, but I do read all of them. I do read all the comments and I do issue corrections. If you correct me, I will issue corrections in, in the description. And I uh, appreciate some of the information you've been sending me via comments. I didn't know how Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, uh, lost his eye. So thank you to one of the listeners who uh, left that in the comment section down below. Please join the conversation. Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, says Florida is where woke goes to die. It's also where your grandparents go to die. And ever since Ron DeSantis took charge, it's where democracy, your civil liberties, and your freedom of speech also go to die. DeSantis hates woke because he loves free speech, unless your free speech includes writing books that tell the story of how America destroyed vast populations of indigenous people or uprooted Africans, brought them here to America in chains, raped, murdered, and then separated mothers from children, separated fathers from children, all in the name of free labor. DeSantis, no fan of free speech when it comes to teaching America's real history or writing about it. DeSantis says he hates the cancel culture, even though he is canceling the LGBTQ as well as the African-American cultures. And if you're a teacher who goes on social media to prove that Governor Free Speech Ron DeSantis is banning books, books, for example, about baseball great Roberto Clemente, and then while you're on social media, you show a video of Florida public school library shelves completely empty because of all the books about race and sexuality that Governor Free Speech has banned, then you get canceled. Yes, Governor DeSantis, Florida certainly is where woke goes to die. Ron DeSantis is so anti-woke, if you disagree with him, he will put you to sleep. You will never wake up again. That's how anti-woke Ron DeSantis is. This is from the New Civil Rights Movement, February 17th. 2023, a teacher in Florida has just been fired for videotaping an empty Florida school library. Brian Covey, a substitute teacher, was just fired in Florida for posting a video last month. It went viral because it exposed the degree of censorship Governor Free Speech Ron DeSantis is willing to exert. And so, this teacher was fired by Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis unilaterally ruled that this teacher's video provided a false narrative on Ron DeSantis's efforts 
to censor teachers. How dare you prove that I am censoring you? You're now censored for claiming that I'm censoring you. The governor is waging war against critical race theory and human sexuality getting taught in Florida's schools. And yet, Mr. Free Speech is censoring. He's, you know, says he's free for free speech, right? But he's censoring the books and the teachers he don't like because nothing screams First Amendment more than the governor of a state ordering people, don't teach race, don't say gay, don't write this, ban this book, and fire that teacher. Wow, somebody give this guy an ACLU Man of the Year award. Now, if you talk to DeSantis supporters, all they complain about is how the cancel culture is trampling upon their First Amendment rights, how our side is against free speech. Yes, Ron DeSantis is a free speech absolutist. And by that, he means there's absolutely no free speech unless it's pre-authorized by me. Now, Republicans get all hot and bothered when you call this fascism or totalitarianism. They hate that. But it's exactly what it is. Republicans will insist we hate government. So how can we be totalitarians? We hate government. How can we be fascists? Because Republicans are lying when they say that. Republicans love government so long as government protects the very wealthy and keeps the rest of us frightened, divided, and down. Republicans love big government, so long as your tax dollars get transferred to them. And if you're Disney and you challenge Ron DeSantis's don't say gay bill, then Florida Republicans, those champions of big business working to remove the shackles from capitalism and unleash the animal spirits, the free market party, the Wall Street supplicants, Republicans who are all about deregulation, all about making the IRS small enough for the richest 1% to drown in their jacuzzi, the party that says get the government out of the way and give corporations all the autonomy they need to fulfill Milton Friedman's utopian wet dream of no EPA or OSHA. Well, if you're Disney and you question Ron DeSantis's culture wars, then that party will strip you of all your autonomy. Disney World, Florida's largest employer, is paying a price for speaking out against Ron DeSantis's policy of refusing to recognize the rights of transgender and other LGBTQ students. DeSantis has thrown out all his alleged free market principles to punish Disney for responding to the free marketplace of ideas. You see, corporations are being held accountable for doing business in states that pass laws punishing transgender students, right? Georgia was punished when it passed these draconian voter ID laws. 
before the midterms that made it harder for people of color to vote. The all-star game was moved, remember? And that's a good thing. Delta was forced to speak out against George's draconian voting laws that punish people of color. Because my First Amendment rights allow me to say, for example, do not buy this product because it's made in a state like Florida that is driving members of the LGBTQ community to suicide, right? But DeSantis, the governor of Florida, wants to put an end to all that. He doesn't want a free marketplace of ideas. He doesn't want American consumers having a voice in what television shows or politicians, corporations sponsor, right? If you sponsor Tucker Carlson, if you donate to, say, Donald Trump, I have the right to say don't use any product that supports Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump. That's democracy. That's freedom of speech. That's voting with your wallet. But Ron DeSantis doesn't want this kind of democracy. He doesn't want any democracy at all. Ron DeSantis wants all of us to be obedient consumers who keep our mouths shut and do what we're told and sold. He's locking up. He's no fan of democracy. Besides going after Disney, he's locking up ex-felons who were told they could vote, and then when they went and registered to vote, he had them arrested. See, there was a, a vote, a referendum, that was passed a couple of years ago in Florida that gave the right to ex-felons, but Republicans don't want ex-felons voting. So they work around it. They, they, they take the will of the people, Florida. The voters said, no, let ex-felons vote. Republicans squash that by adding layer upon layer of bureaucracy. The, the one thing they hate, red tape, Republicans created all this red tape, making it impossible for ex-felons, a lot of people of color, making it harder for them to vote. And then they were tricked. DeSantis's government sent out cards telling ex-felons who tend to be, uh, who tended to be African-American, hey, come register to vote. And then when they registered to vote, they were arrested. All those cases are being thrown out. But have you ever been arrested? Have you ever spent a night in jail? It chills the vote. Just the threat of being arrested chills ex-felons from thinking about voting. DeSantis doesn't stop with the voter ID laws. He has disenfranchised people of color, people who have been arrested. He disenfranchises them by raising the specter of getting arrested once again, right? Nobody wants to get arrested and certainly nobody wants to get arrested again. It's terrifying and expensive. And now, with Disney, DeSantis is sending a signal to corporate America, don't you dare respond to the woke mob who threaten not to buy your products unless you show proof of corporate responsibility to the community.
right? That's the signal he's sending to Disney. That's why DeSantis is going after Disney. He's telling Wall Street and corporate America, do not give a voice to consumers. If you allow Americans to vote with their wallet by threatening, you allow us to threaten to stop using these products unless these corporations take a stand against bigotry. If you give in to those pressures, Florida will bite back because this is all about picking on the transgender community and silencing the consumer, making sure there is less democracy. It's about silencing the voter. It's silencing the masses. It is fascism. Yes, fascists are put into power by the capitalists. But once they gain that power, they use it to play favorites. Under Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, some corporations did better than others. Donald Trump, fascist, punished Amazon and CNN while helping their competitors. And I'll be talking about that next week. This is all from the fascist playbook. Let me know what you think in the comments section below. Who do you think is more dangerous, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? Now, Ron DeSantis, like all Republicans, right, he claims he's big on free speech, unless you're a government employee who questions him, a government employee like Rebecca Jones, who try to expose DeSantis's lies, who try to reveal how DeSantis actually bungled Florida's early COVID response. Do not challenge Ron DeSantis's authority. You will pay a huge price. Rebecca Jones was a Florida data manager. She worked for the state right when COVID hit back in 2020. Rebecca suspected Ron DeSantis had been fudging the numbers, and she set out to prove it while encouraging other state employees to act as whistleblowers. In the end, DeSantis fired her for making public statements without his permission. That would be Ron DeSantis, governor of free speech, Ron DeSantis forbidding state employees from talking with reporters without his prior authorization. Move over, Julian Assange. There's a new champion of the First Amendment in town, and his name is Ron DeSantis. In December of 2022, Rebecca Jones was forced, coerced, to plead guilty to illegally accessing the state's computer system. She paid a $20,000 fine and agreed to perform 150 hours of community service. The DeSantis attack machine tried to drag her reputation through the mud. But he couldn't stop Forbes magazine from naming Rebecca one of 2020's technology innovators of the year. Here is video from December 7th, 2020, while Forbes was naming Rebecca one of 2020's 
Technology Innovators of the Year, acting as a whistleblower to expose how DeSantis was fudging the COVID numbers, the police came to arrest her. Here is video from December 7th, 2020. It's a Florida police coming to arrest Rebecca Jones. This is life in Florida under Governor Ron DeSantis. This is what happens when a government employee challenges Ron DeSantis's narrative of what the truth is about COVID. This is not democracy. Republicans always complain about big, bad government, right? Well, this is their version of government, rule by fiat. The guy at the top, Ron DeSantis, says this is the truth about the COVID numbers. And if anybody working for me disagrees, this is what happens. This is DeSantis government with guns drawn. Outside. Outside. Who else is in the house, ma'am? My two children and my husband. Where's your husband at? Calm down. Calm down. You want the children now? Calm all down. Mr. Jones, come down the stairs. Now. Police, come down now. Bring your children. My children. He just pointed a gun at my children. Florida police acting on orders from Governor Ron DeSantis pointed their guns at Rebecca Jones' two small children. Have you ever had a gun pointed at you? Have you ever had a gun pointed at you? Have you ever had a gun pointed at you by a police officer when you were a kid? Have you ever had a gun pointed at you by a police officer while you were a kid and that police officer takes your mother away? Has that ever happened to you? This is the pro-life party. The children are sacred. Sacred. Florida police acting on orders from Governor Ron DeSantis, pointing their guns at Rebecca Jones's two small children. Ron DeSantis isn't about freedom of speech. He is about chilling dissent. And the most effective way to chill dissent is to give everyone the right to own a gun. Okay? Now listen to me. DeSantis knows, I'm going to talk about guns for a second, because Ron DeSantis is going to be the pro-gun candidate. I'll talk about that in a few seconds. But Ron DeSantis is running as the ultimate pro-gun candidate. And here is why. He's a fascist. Now listen to me. DeSantis is all about the Second Amendment because he knows that only a certain type will walk around Florida carrying a weapon, and it isn't a Democrat, okay? Democrats believe in gun control. We believe, for the most part, that it is the job of the government and the police and the judges to deal with criminals. It's not the job of individuals to deal with criminals. It's the job of a good government, good police. That's what Democrats believe. 
We believe that when ordinary citizens carry weapons, it endangers everyone, including, now pay attention to me on this, it endangers everyone, especially the police. Let me repeat, when you allow everyone to carry a gun, it endangers everybody's lives, including the police. It's why the police, when they raided Rebecca Jones's home, they had their guns out. It's why they pointed guns at her small children because the police are terrified. They have no idea who is carrying a weapon. And this is exactly what fascists like Ron DeSantis want. They want the police trigger happy. This places civilization at risk. Now, listen to me. Civilized people only want the police to be armed. Civilized people don't want everybody armed. They only want the government armed. Here's the problem. This is how Republicans succeed in getting people to vote against their own interests. The police are terrified of getting shot, right? But Republicans get them to vote against their own interests. According to a recent study out of Princeton, police, for the most part, vote Republican. This is how Republicans succeed in getting people to vote against their own best interests. The Republicans are an extension of the National Rifle Association, which is a mouthpiece for the gun industry. So it is Republicans who are getting assault weapons into the marketplace. It is Republicans who want everyone to buy guns. Police are terrified of being shot to death, and yet Republicans convince them to vote against their own physical safety. They get them to vote against their own safety, and it's getting worse. Cops are more terrified than ever. You saw what happened in Uvalde, how, how many cops stood around too, too afraid to go in there. They're too terrified to do their job. And there's only one reason cops are too terrified to do their jobs. It's because of the guns. It's too dangerous out there because of the guns. When a cop pulls someone over, that cop is terrified of getting shot. It's getting worse because more and more Americans are armed, thanks to the Republicans, thanks to the NRA, thanks to Ron DeSantis, who want everyone carrying guns. Democrats don't want that. Republicans do, and yet cops vote for Republicans. Why? Why do cops vote for Republicans? Even though Republicans are facilitating the sale of the very thing that gets them killed, that ruins their job. Why do cops vote Republicans? Why do cops vote against their own safety? Because... Republicans support the cops when cops shoot unarmed citizens, right? Republicans have your back if you're a cop and you're trigger happy. 
Republicans won't hold cops accountable for cops shooting unarmed civilians. That's why cops vote for Republicans. This is insanity. It's the end of democracy. Guns are the end of democracy and the pathway to fascism. We have a serious problem here. We have a problem because of guns, because of guns, and only because of guns, nobody wants to be a cop anymore. At least nobody who's somewhat rational, sane, and uh, mentally balanced, nobody wants to be a cop anymore. I'm putting up these headlines, New York Times. Applications fall, police departments lure recruits with bonuses and attention. Uh, AP, overwhelmed cops, combat violence, crime as ranks dwindle. Uh, London Breed in San Francisco asks for $28 million amid severe San Francisco police shortage. Axios reports police departments all over America are struggling with staffing shortages. Why? Because of guns. We have a shortage of cops in America. Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, Oregon, they can't find people who want to be cops. Why? Because nobody in his or her right mind wants to patrol the streets knowing everyone has a gun. Which means if we don't institute an assault weapons ban today, if we don't do something about the guns today, the police are going to look exactly like today's Republican Party. If we do not do something about the guns, all that will be left are the crazies. All that will be left in our police departments are the trigger-happy crazies. And that's what happened to the Republican Party. The crazies took over. There are no rational actors left in the Republican Party. It's too dangerous for them. It's, too, it's getting too dangerous to be a cop, and it's getting too dangerous to be a rational Republican. When you interview all the Republicans who've left Washington since Trump rose to power, they all say it's because it was physically dangerous. It was dangerous for their family. It was dangerous for them. And this is what all these guns are now doing to our law enforcement. If we continue to pour more assault weapons into the street, only crazy people will want to be cops the same way only crazy people want to be Republican politicians. And they are crazy. These Republican politicians are crazy. We have to get rid of these guns because there are plenty of sadists, plenty of trigger happy psychopaths who would love to wear a badge and get paid to start shooting at the quote-unquote bad guys. Again, we already have a problem of cops voting for Republicans. They can't do the math 
on why they're so miserable at their job. So they vote Republican. We already have a problem of some cops, some siding with insurrectionists on January 6th. The more dangerous guns make it to be a cop, the only ones who will want to be a cop will be the fascists. And that is precisely what people like Ron DeSantis want. They want more guns, more terrified police officers, more trigger-happy men and women on patrol, more guns, more extrajudicial brown shirts taking the law into their own hands. More guns mean a trigger-happy police force pointing guns at children like we just saw in that video. It's precisely what Republicans like Ron DeSantis want. I want you to listen to me now, please. Let's think about guns for a second, okay? I know some friends who own guns, who are liberals and lefties. I, I get that. But who do you think stockpiles guns? Who do you think fetishizes guns? Not doctors, not lawyers, not teachers, intellectuals, not ministers or children of the Enlightenment. They might own, like I said, one gun, but they don't worship it the way Ron DeSantis does. Because, now listen to me, there are only so many hours in the day why would a child of the Enlightenment, somebody who believes in democracy, why would a child of the Enlightenment waste any of those hours learning how to use a gun, how to clean it, how to fire it, how to you know, go into target practice? Why would you do that when you can read, relax, or go for a walk? There is only a certain type of human who wants a gun, who worships a gun, who stockpiles AR-15s. Owning a gun is a major time suck. I'd rather have sex. I'd rather spend whatever time I have having sex than playing with a gun. These macho, they think they're macho, these guys with their weapon, they are signaling to children of the Enlightenment that they are half men. When you celebrate your AR-15, you are signaling to the rest of us that you are half a man. I see a guy with a gun. I see an involuntary celibate. There is nothing masculine about needing a weapon. When I want to feel powerful, I do Wordle. And that makes me superior and better than people who spend time at the gun range. I'm higher up on the evolutionary ladder because I choose Wordle over guns. People who worship and celebrate guns are diseased. They are of feeble mind, body, and soul. 
and they all found their way into the Republican Party. And if we don't put an end to this, this fetishization of guns, if we don't ban assault weapons and get guns off the street, these subhuman, flaccid souls will find their way into local law enforcement and be the only ones left in local law enforcement. And then it's over. And then it is over. And that's precisely what Ron DeSantis's plans are for it to be over. When, when this happens, it'll just be local police forces acting like gangs. Some already do, but this will be writ large. Local police forces acting like gangs, controlling the politicians and the citizens instead of the citizens and the politicians controlling the police. This is what happens in third world countries. When you make guns available to everyone, either legally or illegally, doesn't matter what the laws are, when you make guns available to everyone, the only ones who stockpile those guns are the enemies of democracy. The only people who stockpile guns are the enemies of democracy. You don't buy an AR-15. You don't buy five AR-15s. You don't buy 15 AR-15s because you have a sense of civic responsibility. And Ron DeSantis knows this, which is why DeSantis, if he does run for president, according to Bloomberg, Ron DeSantis will be all in on guns. He is running as the gun candidate, according to Bloomberg. Now, as I talk about in this week's newsletter, which you should sign up for, please go to my website to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. As I talk about in this week's newsletter, states with the laxest gun laws have the highest gun mortality rates. That's according to the CDC, and that's not subject to debate. You cannot debate that. This is a fact. States with the laxest gun laws have the highest gun mortality rates. More guns mean more people dying from guns than the facts, okay? But facts don't matter. DeSantis is weighing a presidential run and is reportedly going all in as the pro-gun candidate. That's according to Bloomberg, which is reporting that DeSantis is behind legislation now that would allow Floridians, of all people, Floridians, to carry concealed weapons without a permit. When I think of any state that should allow its citizens to carry concealed weapons without a permit, the first people I think of are Floridians. That's what I always think. If only people in Florida could carry concealed weapons without a permit. This is from the Washington Post. This is a legitimate source. I'm going to go full screen here if I can. I hope you can hear me. This is from the Washington Post. A permitless carry law will likely make things worse. 
One analysis found that gun homicides increased by 22% on average in the three years after states passed such a measure. A separate study found that permitless carry led to a 13% increase in shootings by police. It goes on to say, perhaps explaining why law enforcement organizations have been some of the most vocal opponents of permitless carry where it is proposed. Really, that's according to the Washington Post. Uh, I haven't really heard from the mainstream media the number of law enforcement officers who are against permitless carry. I would like to see more reporting on that, especially since permitless carry laws lead to a 13% increase in trigger-happy cops. This is Florida, which has been on the forefront of making it easier to not just buy a gun, but to use one as well. Their stand-your-ground laws allow you, if you're in Florida, to kill someone with a gun on the street. You don't have to do it to, to claiming that you were afraid you were going to be killed. You can just use the gun and kill someone just because you felt you were being physically threatened. Not if you feel like your life was in danger, just if you simply felt physically threatened Feel free to shoot and kill somebody on the street and stand your ground. Florida has no universal background checks on gun purchases. Anyone in Florida can buy a gun. Isn't that great? And it allows people in Florida with, with a permit right now, DeSantis wants to change that, it allows people with a permit to walk around carrying a concealed weapon. As I just said, DeSantis wants you to be able to do this without a permit, even though all evidence points to concealed carry uh, without a permit, uh, resulting in an increase in gun homicides. Ron DeSantis, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Ron DeSantis maintains that gun control laws don't prevent homicides. What does it matter? What does the truth matter? The Washington, Repo the Washington Post reports that DeSantis thinks, and again, I wish I was making this up, which is probably what I think this show should be called. The Washington Post reports that Ron DeSantis thinks Florida aired Back in 2018, when after the Parkland shootings, remember that? When after the Parkland shootings, Florida passed laws instituting a three-day waiting period before purchasing a gun, raising the age of gun ownership to 21, and banning the sale of bump stocks. Remember the shooter in Vegas? He was using bump stocks. Ron DeSantis... Uh, thinks we should go back to pre-Parkland, Florida shooting laws. He is Mr. Gun. He loves his guns. Yes, he does. Ron DeSantis loves his guns, and he's going to be running on guns. But 
deep down, he knows guns make us less safe. He knows that. From the Washington Post on February 10th, 2023, get a load of this. Headline, February 10th, 2023. Headline, DeSantis wanted to ban guns at event, but not to be blamed. Emails show. What event could that be? Ron DeSantis wanted to ban guns at an event, but he didn't want to be blamed, according to new emails. It turns out on Election Day last November, Ron DeSantis didn't want people bringing their weapons to his victory party. Mr. Pro-Gun, the candidate who was all in on everyone carrying guns. He wants everyone carrying guns. He just doesn't want anyone carrying a gun around him. All the local police at his disposal round-the-clock protection that Ron DeSantis has, the bodyguards that he has, and yet he's smart enough to know, ban guns at my victory party. Right? This is from the Washington Post. I'll go full screen here, I hope. This is from the Washington Post. As Ron DeSantis prepared for an election night party in downtown Tampa last year, city officials received a surprising and politically sensitive request. A politically sensitive request. The Republican governor's campaign wanted weapons banned from his victory celebration at the city-run Tampa Convention Center, a city official said in emails obtained by the Washington Post. And DeSantis's campaign asked that the city take responsibility for the firearms ban, the official said, not the governor, because the governor is a big supporter of gun rights. Right? Big, big supporter of gun rights. So how would it look if the guy who's going to be running for president as Mr. Two-Way, he's Two-Way, Mr. Big Second Amendment, I just don't want the guns around me. Everybody else's life should be in danger, but not mine. Ron DeSantis is a coward. Unfortunately, he also served in our military, but not really. He was a JAG officer. He was a JAG-off, <clears throat> sir. Ron DeSantis was a JAG-off, sir, which means he had his Harvard Law degree and he wasn't going to see any real action. He was in Iraq. Thank you for your service. But he's still chicken shit. But he can run on his military record as a JAG officer, even though he didn't see any action. The only action Ron DeSantis saw was at Gitmo watching the CIA waterboard the detainees and not do anything about it, Mr. JAG officer. Gee, I wonder if he met anybody from the CIA down at Gitmo who helped facilitate his political career as a, as a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law. 
He is dangerous. Ron DeSantis is a much bigger threat to our democracy than Donald Trump because he served in our military, sort of, kind of. What do you think? Do you think JAG officers uh, are the same as battle-tested soldiers? Maybe I'm wrong. Let me know in the comments section. I think graduates of Harvard Law School who go off to Iraq like Ron DeSantis and serve as JAG officers, he got a bronze star. I'd like to know if his life was as in danger as Pat Tillman's, as, as soldiers who go out on patrol. Maybe I'm wrong. And if so, I will apologize. But right now, I think Ron DeSantis is chicken shit. I think he only served in the military when he knew it was safe to go to Iraq with a Harvard Law degree and serve as a JAG officer in the green zone. But he'll run as a decorated veteran. And that's why this chicken shit blowhard is so dangerous to our democracy. I fear that he may actually be more dangerous than Donald Trump. Now, yes, Donald Trump was a threat to American democracy. The insurrection on January 6th was real. But Trump is a buffoon. He had to go extrajudicial to try to overthrow our government because nobody in the military, the Justice Department, or the FBI would join him. Our system on January 6th, for better or worse, held the line against Donald Trump because Trump wasn't one of them. He wasn't part of the system. January 6th failed because Trump had to go outside the government. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they're not part of our government. January 6th was doomed from the start. Unlike DeSantis, Donald Trump never learned how the levers of government power actually work. Donald Trump, unlike Ron DeSantis, never learned how to create the singularity between government and corporate America. He never learned how to create the singularity between government and corporate America, which is the definition of fascism. The problem with Ron DeSantis is, like Franco, like Mussolini, like Hitler, Ron DeSantis served in the military. DeSantis served in the military. He served in Congress, and he's a governor. He knows how to use power. He is an American Caesar who will cross the Rubicon and is just craven enough to accept the crown. Now, I want Trump and his family locked away for life. I do, right now. And I'm willing to risk DeSantis becoming the front runner. But there is the law of unintended consequences, one of which would be President Ron DeSantis. I don't know anything. But to those of you who think Ron DeSantis is better than Trump, 
Allow me to paraphrase Shakespeare's Marillus, who warns the Roman plebeians as they fall prey to Caesar's charms. You blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things. Oh, you hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome, knew you not the Donald? He will be worse than Pompey. Ron DeSantis. I may be wrong. Let me know what you think in the comments section down below. If you enjoyed this segment of The David Feldman Show, please subscribe to it. And I have no corporate backing. I don't have a 501c3. This is a small little podcast, a lonely voice in the internet wilderness. Whoever is listening to me right now is doing so because somebody shared, shared this with them. Nobody's promoting me. So I have to ask you, if you want to help me, the best way to help me if you enjoyed this is to copy and paste the link to this episode. If you're listening to it as a podcast or watching it as a video, please copy and paste the link and share it with your friends via social media or email. That is the best way to thank me uh, for the work that I'm doing here. And uh, please hit the like button and please uh, leave a comment in the comment section below. Let me be very clear here about the, the community that we're creating. There are strict guidelines in order to leave a comment uh, wherever you're listening or hearing this. Some things are non-negotiable. You'll, you'll see the guidelines. I'm not interested in certain types of people commenting. So the, the community is growing, and it's a collection of really smart, passionate, and informed listeners. And I read all your comments. You'll know that I read your comment if there's a heart next to it. I try to respond to all of them. I, I can't. There just aren't enough hours in the day. But I'm reading all your comments, and I thank you for those comments. If you'll notice, I issued a correction on the last episode. I got two things wrong. And so if you go back and see the description on my last show, I issued two corrections. I do issue corrections. If you fact check me and I get something wrong, I will correct it in the description of that episode. So thank you to the people who correct me and thank you to the people who share articles and links and thank you to people who agree with me, disagree with me, or just want to tell me they enjoyed the show. I'm in a vacuum here, so I appreciate what everyone has to say. So thank you for that. We do office hours every Friday night. The way to get a link to it is by going to my website. You need a phone or Zoom. You can dial into office hours. Please subscribe to my newsletter. If you subscribe to my newsletter, it includes uh, an office hours link. And there's a community of like-minded, respectful citizens of the world who believe in peaceful dialogue, children of the Enlightenment, and I think you'll find uh, new friends 
and better people. So please check out Office Hours by going to my website and getting the link. It starts at 6 p.m. Eastern on Friday night. I'm there for the first 10 minutes from 6 to about 6.10. And then at 8 p.m. Eastern, I host for about 90 minutes. And you can talk to me about whatever you want. If you have questions, criticisms, if you want me to know something, that's when I make myself available to the listeners from six, I'm sorry, from eight to about 9.30 every Friday night Eastern. It's through Zoom. Get the link. You can actually dial in if you don't know how to work Zoom. Please join this community. My friend got the medication. Thank you uh, to all the people who... uh, wrote to me about that. My friend now has the medication and it might actually get better uh, moving forward. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Joining us are the Hershenfelds. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and his son is not. But he is the author of this book, Today Is Now, written by his alter ego, Samuel Benjamin, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. And this book has the Feldman guarantee. If you buy it and it doesn't make you laugh hysterically, I will reimburse you. It also has the Hershenfeld guarantee, which is if you buy it and you want me to sign it for you, let's meet. I'll buy the coffee. You bring the pen and I'll sign the book for you. So you'll even nice. buy the book for them. And and, no, 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 no. and and it has the other Hershenfeld guarantee that if you can't figure out why you bought it, I will work with you to figure <laughs> out why you bought it. And I will read the book for you. Okay. So we will buy the book. You'll get a cup of coffee. It'll be explained to you. And you don't even have to read the book. I will read Today is Now for the Fifth Time by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Go buy this book. Support this brilliant, brilliant writer. Brilliant alter ego. Thank Let's you. talk about Thank clinical you. depression, shall we? One of my favorite topics. It put your son through Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. It's also one of my favorite musicals, Clinical <laughs> Depression, the musical. It's just... Depression! <laughs> clinical Depression, the musical. Yes. Clinical, the thing about clinical depression is, it, it, it's. I mean, the name is a little bit misleading. Because depression is depression. Clinical just means you saw someone who says, you should go to a clinic. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who are depressed. They just didn't see the person who said, hey, you should go to a clinic. Or they saw someone who doesn't know where there is a clinic. Lots of people are clinically depressed without saying it. It's not that the distinction between depression 
and clinical depression. It's really semantic. Well, they do. It was all one of my favorite people in the world is the new senator from Pennsylvania, Fetterman, who had a stroke mm -hmm. and he has now gone into the hospital, they say, suffering from clinical depression. And this was my reaction. I wanted to ask you two about this because it's a, it's a serious problem. What was your reaction? That I think there's something because he's a Democrat and because he's for Medicare for all and because we've we we bear witness to all his suffering. I think he's one of the most important politicians in Washington, D.C. An interesting take on it. But we're so accustomed to multimillionaires being immune to actual suffering in this world. It's refreshing to see a senator. I'm sorry he's suffering, but he's my I'm what he's my senator. Mm -hmm. he, he his suffering kind of speaks for the rest of the country, whereas Chuck Schumer's suffering is not not apparent. And the other reason. OK, and they, they all, the other thing I thought was we're OK with a president being disabled like Franklin Roosevelt. Clinical depression is kind of tough. You really can't be the president suffering from clinical depression. How about Abraham Lincoln? Continue, please. He was severely depressed. Well, a lot of my listeners are saying maybe he was your president, but my listeners are thinking Jefferson Davis was my. I have a big following in the sound. He, he was clinically depressed. Yes. I think it was in his nature. And then he had some real tragedies, like the death of his son. And, um, you know, people who have studied him, which I am not one of, they write about this. Have and Winston, Winston Churchill? Yeah. Suffered from depression? Well, many great people have. Marvin Hamlish? <laughs> I have no idea. I just felt like... <laughs> you like that name. I just like that name. Now, one of the things Lincoln was depressed about, you can see it in his physique, he was just too skinny. He could never get a full meal. He was always because he was always in a rush. He was one of those people who worked very hard. And it's right. depressing if you have to always skip dessert. That's yeah. a depressing thing. Yeah. 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 So in the nuclear age where a president has to make supposedly decisions instantaneously, although I've disproven that on previous shows, presidents can wait weeks, months before they have to do anything involving war. But we've been told that in the nuclear age, you can't have a clinically depressed president because he's got to go into that situation room and make decisions. Is that true? Well, or more importantly, asking the real psychiatrist, can somebody clinically depressed make life or death situations? Um, somebody wrote a paper recently <clears throat> saying that depressives <clears throat> have a clearer view of the world than cockeyed optimists. And that's why, for example, Churchill didn't fall for any of this hogwash of Hitler, the white paper of the Chamberlain was waiting mm -hmm. for his head. <clears throat> and he just kept pushing for preparing for war. You know, we most of us want to see the bright side of things. 
and uh, which is nice, but it sometimes clouds our vision. I'm going to quote quote Dr. Benjamin here. This is an actual. If you could just lean in a little closer, you you're soft. You're a little soft. That's weird. Um, Is that better? Uh, It's okay. Not great, but go ahead. What the hell's going on? That's weird. Um, Please continue. Well, Dr. Benjamin actually says depression is correct. (laughs) In other words, it is an accurate assessment of what the world is like and what life is like. It's full of all sorts of horrible and tragic things. So in some ways, a depressed person has an, actually has an accurate view of what the world is. It's not a helpful view as far as getting through the day and enjoying yourself, but it's actually, in some ways, correct. Now, if it then goes beyond a certain point and becomes what they call like a psychotic depression, where your your understanding of the world and reality is being clouded to a degree that you've lost touch with reality, then obviously it's not helpful. But a little bit of depression is uh, it goes a long way. This is interesting. Yeah, you're you're being serious. I concur. I absolutely concur. You concur. So, what are the gradations of depression? What is sadness? What is depression? What is seasonal? Sadness aspect? is not the same as depression. Number one, sadness is absolutely a normal part of life. Um, Mourning is a normal part of life. That's not the same as depression either. Even though the drug companies, in conjunction with the DSM, tried last year to have it declared that any mourning that goes longer, I don't remember exactly, but maybe like five days, you need to to intervene with medication. That would be the morning after pill, I believe. I got to it before your son did. I I, I knew he had it. I did not. I did not. I was thinking, um, I was trying to work out a joke more about the gradations, the levels of, of depression. I'm not there yet, but I was uh, thinking about the codes and the colors. But um, yeah, I would say also definitely sadness is not depression. Depression, and I've I've suffered from it in my life. the 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 main feature is, and I think you know, it could be what what's going on with Fetterman is that your mood sinks to such a low degree that you can't really function. Things look so bleak. And so dark. And part of that isn't just things looking bleak. The main feature of it that's so harmful is that your self-image mm-hmm. goes in the toilet. So you can you can feel some sort of mixture of regret and self-criticism and self-loathing and all of this uh, negative energy directed at yourself that you really can't interact with the world in a healthy way, or or sometimes even interact with it at all. You can just become completely shut down to the world. And which, so yeah. he he had a stroke that might have been life threatening, and it's affected his ability in some ways to do the job the way he wants to do his job. Although I think he is doing his job in a different way mm-hmm. but that could make you depressed if, if you have an illness that makes it harder for you to function the way you want to function is that depression 
I think it's, it's something else. I'll, I'll let the actual doctor talk, but what's going on here could be that secondary to a, a cataclysmic physical event. You can then get, you can actually then get the psychiatric problem of depression after, after a surgery, it could happen after a stroke, after a, after giving birth, you know, uh, after overeating at a buffet, um, which leads to giving birth in a way, not, if you know it, can. it actually can in israel they 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 noted that the <clears throat> most active night of the year in the um delivery room is passover night because all of these pregnant women women stuff themselves at the seder and then went into labor no, nine months before Passover is Tubishvat, and that's when everybody has sex. Don't you know your can- well? I don't know what is the holiday yes. nine months before Passover. Right? But also, that's the that's the miracle of the parting of the waters <laughs> that we read about in the in the Seder. Okay, go ahead. Oh, Austin. I see what you're saying. So the the fetus is internalizing the story, the, yeah. the Haggadah, and hearing "Let my people go" and "You're yes. free." Let me go. Let yeah. me go. I see. Yeah. So any of these catastrophic things can lead to depression if they involve a self-blame or self-attack. For example, this was my very first inpatient patient as a psychiatric resident, low those many years ago. We were admitted, a man was admitted from surgery to psychiatry. Why was he on surgery? Because this man lived on the Grand Concourse. He had been married for 50 or 60 years. His wife had a massive stroke, which completely disabled her. She did not have a mind. She did not have anything. And he took care of her day and night for a couple of years. And finally, she didn't want her to go to a hospital. He, he, he loved her. Finally, after a couple of years, she died. He sat with the body for a few days and then went into his bathroom and took his straight razor and cut his own throat. Miraculously, somebody found him, rushed him to the hospital, and, and he survived and ended up on psychiatry. And what the, the whole story was that for those three years, he was hoping she would die because he couldn't stand seeing her suffer like this. It was it was just too much of a burden for him. So that even though he loved her, he wanted her to die. And when she died, he felt like a murderer. So he got depressed. And what do you do with murderers? You kill them. Now that's getting over into the the area. punishment where we punish ourselves. Can depression be part? You've talked about how. Sometimes I punish myself. Can depression be a form of self-punishment? You deserve it. That's it. <laughs> By the way, I wanted to just before we before we change. You know, I please. wonder. I wonder if that would be a good treatment for patients. A certain type of patient where the doctor just just attacks the patient, <laughs> like it's like a, like electroshock <laughs> therapy without the the electricity. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It has been tried by certain wackos, yes. It's the Dr. Don Rickles, psychiatrist. 
I wanted to just say there was a coda to the doctor's story about that that patient on the Grand Concourse. Uh, the coda is that a pre-war three-bedroom became available. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm and, depressed. And those do not open up every day. <laughs> I just I mean it's probably not the headline of the story but it's it's not nothing it's not a footnote it's somewhere in between two bathrooms <laughs> one to slit your throat all right uh, wow depression one of my complaints is I don't think there's any more stigma with depression I just think there's for some they either don't know they're depressed or if they are depressed, they call an 800 number and it's hard to get help in this country, isn't it? Wait, um, you, you're yeah, saying I'm sorry? You don't think there's a stigma anymore, you're saying? I uh, I don't. I think it's sure. much less. I do but, think it's much less. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember from my own experience 25 years ago that part of the suffering was also that on top of everything else then there's the shame about it yeah I, actually, I yes i agree i had the same shame yes oh god I, if people knew yeah. that i was going through this it's so weak and it's so yeah. this and so that so yeah i know what you're talking about about the shame. level yeah i i had a friend who was suffering from depression right. i was just so ashamed of him that i didn't uh, but that that was very brilliant David, because what you just undercut is the projection of the shame onto other people. People don't feel it's shameful. The depressed person feels it is shameful, and he imagines other people are saying, you know, you're a terrible right. person. My depression manifests itself in a memory loss. I, I can always tell when I'm not uh, at 100% where... I, I forget yeah. names and forget why I'm depressed. I know I'm sad, but I can't remember what, what's upsetting me. Yeah, I had. I, oh, go ahead. I was, I was just talking to my brother tonight because it's his birthday. And Ethan, you should give him a call tonight. I will do that. You will do that. David, you could give him a call also. I'm going to wait until after 11 o'clock when the rates okay, are cheaper. Right. That would be a, that's from 40 years ago. But we both lost this very close cousin at the beginning of the week, and both of us have been incredibly exhausted the entire week. And I could barely drag myself out of bed every morning. So it's important to recognize what it does to you physically. Yeah. Because you, you think it's something else. Right. And he, called, he called his cardiologist. He thought maybe... He was having a heart problem. And that's mourning. That's not depression. That's mourning. Exactly. Do people feel degrees of sadness differently? You take two people experiencing the same loss. Do they, they might uh, respond to it differently, but do they experience it differently? Like one person might get angry. Another person might get manic or whatever. But is the pain equal across the board? I think that's very hard to judge. But different. But you're right. Different people have very dif different defenses against it, and some people get very angry as a way of dealing with depression or or, or the loss of a loved one. Some people eat. Some people don't eat. 
Some people stop sleeping. Some people just go to sleep for many hours. And some people lash out at the world. And most of the people lashing out for the sake of lashing out. Would that be fighting depression or is that a response to trauma? When you see somebody, I'm not going to mention any names in politics, but you see some people who just live for the fight. Yeah, it could be. But, you know, a friend of mine, he was writing this about children. Um, I think he wrote a whole book with this title, but it applies to adults also. I'd rather be mad than sad. Mm -hmm. That's the title of the book. And it's about little children who seem angry all the time. And they are, that's how they're defending against sadness. Ethan, your thoughts? Because I was going to share an experience. Um, No, please, you go ahead. I was helping a neighbor deal with getting a prescription filled. And it got to the point, it was theater of the absurd, where I was actually calling the police on CVS. It was just so beyond anything I've ever experienced. And what I did, I was so angry that I sat down and I wrote a manifesto against the for-profit healthcare system in in America. And then I and I went and did it on my podcast and I felt better. Mm-hmm. It didn't solve his problem, but I I I didn't return his calls. Yeah. For a couple of hours, because I felt I've already taken care of it. I'm good. I, I lashed out at the world over your problems. Uh, I took care of it. You're, you still haven't gotten the prescription filled, but I feel good. I I, uh, I wouldn't call that lashing out. Lashing out would have been taking your AK-47 and destroying all the the windows at the. Um, I showed door. it. I showed it to you once. And you have to tell everybody about it. But but what you did is you took your justifiable anger and used it in a very productive way. That's called in in uh, in in the doctor's school of philosophy. That's called sublimation, where you take a an impulse. It might be destructive, and you turn it into something creative or constructive. So that's what you did. That so you get a you get a smiley face sticker. And an A plus. Is all art sublimation? If you're painting with poop. (laughs) Which I believe was the, the, uh, was Freud's. That was his treatise on art, painting (laughs) with poop. (laughs) On Moses and monotheism and uh, Michelangelo. um, Um, Painting with poop. Sublimation is taking something that's bothering you and channeling it into something either unproductive or productive, right? Overeating, drinking, or. No, no. I I think think in the, in the, in the Freudian sense, let me speak for the doctor who's spent his life studying this stuff. (laughs) Um, We would say like, let's say you're having an, let's say you're extremely charged up sexually, um, which I can see that you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, instead of going out and and groping people on Lexington Avenue, you go into your studio and make a beautiful uh, concupiscent sculpture. That's sublimation. You've now turned it into a piece of art, and you've spared all your neighbors. I see. Right. And we we train people to do that. We we ask them 
to sublimate these urges more productively? Is that so, uh, that's what that's what society does? That's what civilization yeah. does. Yeah. Starting in little with little children. Yes, yeah. I see. In my case, I was very bad at it. I, I every time there was a every time there was a ceramics class in school from kindergarten all the way up through high school. Every single time, I would make a ceramic toilet. <laughs> so you we got. That's a failure of sublimation. It's like a half-assed <laughs> sublimation. It's a sub-sublimation. <laughs> what, looking back, let me ask Ethan, without violating anybody's privacy, did you ever worry that your father was looking at your paintings as though they were Rorschach tests? Um, no. I mean, I I was very careful about it, so like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't finger paint. I would just use my toes. <laughs> I tried to keep it very, yeah, I painted, uh, I kept it very abstract. I was, uh, yeah. Could that be a legitimate concern, not of a parent who's a psychiatrist, but if a parent is looking at his child's finger paintings and they're somewhat disturbing, trees with big holes in it, right? Isn't that a scary thing? Like, shouldn't you... To you, it's scary. I was, I, I think I read somewhere if your kid is drawing pictures of trees with holes in them. You don't interpret children's artistic productions. You know why? Because it stops at death. And two, my son wouldn't stop making swastikas. Good, good for him. And I hate daddy. Now, is that, am, I, am I reading too much into this? Here's a story of the failure of sublimation. Okay. Okay. When when my residency group, the first day in the state hospital, they took us around so that we could experience the average day of an of a patient in the hospital. So we went to group therapy and this kind of therapy and that kind of therapy. And we went to art therapy, which was a big thing. They gave everybody a big hunk of clay. And we were told, make whatever you want out of it. So I probably made something very childish and infantile because I'm not a very good artist. But the guy sitting next to me made a giant erect penis. And this was a doctor? Yes. Neurologist so, in his defense. So I went to my analyst at my regular analytic session that day. And I described this to my analyst, who was a very perceptive old-time analyst. And she said, he's psychotic. And I ranted and raved, what are you talking about? Blah, 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 you old-fashioned people and uh, prejudice and art. Later that year, this guy told us in our resident therapy group that he, in fact, had been psychotic as a medical student, was admitted to our hospital. And the whole reason he wanted to be a doctor there was to prove to himself that he was completely better, huh. which he wasn't. <laughs> but boy, was he a good cock sculptor. <laughs> Before you go, what are you reading? Going. We're staying here. Uh, I think we have, uh, well, yeah. we, what are you reading? I'm still reading this yoga. I think I might have told you this book by Emmanuel mm -hmm. something. 
really nice memoir of a guy's uh, experience at a silent retreat. And are you going outside? I'm having difficulty going outside. Oh, oh um, sorry. Can I just say one other book I'm reading? I yes, mentioned yes. it last week. I read it, but I just wanted to mention, mention it. There's a, maybe I mentioned it, but it's this, these short stories by a Mexican writer. I'd never heard of her. Her name is Amparo Davila, and the book is called The House Guest. And they are the most incredible little short stories. She was born almost 100 years ago. I never heard of her, but she's a giant of literature in Mexico, a Mexican friend of mine told me. So again, the book is called The House Guest. It's, it's, it's now out in English. It's great. Sorry, you were saying about going And are you outside. going outside? You have to walk the dogs, right? So you go outside every day. I go outside a lot. I've been going out. I've been out and about. I did a comedy show in a crowded room. I've uh, been going outside. Yeah, I've been finding excuses not to go outside. Well, start going because the longer you give yourself the excuses, the harder it's going to get. That is a fact. Right. I went outside today. I went shopping. Good. There was, but you know, I looked around and it was, you know, I went. Eh. Eh. It's like it's a lot of nasty looking people and New right, well, York schedule, is not let's schedule that dinner. Yes. Let's yes. schedule that dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. New York has lost the serendipity. There there was a time when you could walk outside and you would see a store. Uh, uh, there would be bookstore. You could What's the word? Be a flaneur? Is that the word? Flaneur, yeah. Yeah, the flaneur. Uh, a boulevardier. We, we also lost the restaurant called Serendipity, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. So the city, are we in denial about the state of New York City, or at least Manhattan? You, you should think? come to my neighborhood, David. It is hopping and happening, and everyone's just running around like it's 2019. It's, uh, because that's you're all young. Come that's visit. Brooklyn. I'm the old guy on the block, but yeah, yeah that's all. Yeah, I so that makes me depressed and resentful towards young people. Yeah. They're not wearing masks. They're yeah. having free and open relationships, and I get hostile, and then I turn it inward on myself. You're a regular case study. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading, Doctor? Do you ask everybody that yes, question? Yes, I do. And I also ask them about their reading habits. Yeah. I'm always curious how people schedule reading into their lives. I, I've since I think since I became a comedy writer and I got to meet brilliant people because of certain shows I was working on, I would say, what's your reading schedule? I should have taken notes because I remember asking Christopher Hitch. There were a couple of people I met and I asked them their, their discipline when it came to reading. And I should have written it down. I could make it up, you know, just invent stuff. What? I'm sorry. Well, I read horizontally too much. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, it's genetic. So then I read a few pages and then I'm asleep, <laughs> which is why I'm still reading that book, Yoga, a week later. It's not that long a book. So I got to I got to read while standing up or sitting up but i like to read horizontal get a standing desk that keeps me awake oh yeah i'm reading that book about animals that you gave me little short stories what's it called oh yeah what is that called i don't know yeah that was great 
It is good. Oh, where's my memory? Yeah. Gone with the wind. All right. Um, Speaking of gone with the wind, one of the seven books I have going is Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. It's the history of the making of The Godfather. And Mario Puzo's life is so fascinating because he he made Pulp Fiction. He was a full-time novelist writing garbage. After the war, there was a job where men would go to a an office and just write crap all day and it would be sold. I guess they, they weren't like romance novels. And that the he wrote The Godfather like it was pulp fiction. Sort of like Kilgore Trout. Is that how do I, is that Vonnegut? Yeah. Yeah. What 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 is Kilgore? What is that? He was his nom de plume who, who would write the 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 crap in between the uh girly pictures in porno magazines. And Vonnegut did that for a living. Well Kilgore Trout did. I don't know about Vonnegut. Yeah, he was a fictional character in his in his novels. Yeah. Interesting. Um, All right. Oh, oh uh, I'm March sorry. 12th, March 12th. I'm plugging that same gig I was plugging last time. March 12th. Put it in your calendars. Ugh comedy. U-G exclamation point. On a Ugh. Sunday. On a Sunday. We afternoon. listened to our last episode. We were laughing so hard. Did you hear it? Did you listen to it? No, I couldn't find it. I'm having trouble finding it in the new iteration of the show. I'm finding it. Right. A I'll send it to, to you to locate the link, but uh, okay, I'll send it to you. It was so it. funny. All right, good. So I want to see it. Thanks, guys. Very good. Thank you, Doctor Phil. Oh, thank you. Thank you. God, thank God you, bless. Ethan. God bless. God bless. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney and a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And I didn't know that Jeremiah Wright is also United Church of Christ. That is correct. I did not know that. I want to talk about the House Oversight Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, Comer, Jordan, and all these important issues that they are tackling. But you are in the middle of a book. Your book comes out when? On April 1st. April 1st. April 1st. Three Ps. Three Ps. That would be peace and porn and prayer. The three things that I've spent most of my professional career doing, talking about, fighting about. And uh, we're preparing a press release uh, for dissemination. And <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, you got it. Professor Ann Lee wrote. It's called Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I walked out of that movie. I think I. I honestly don't. I've I've only walked out of one movie ever, and it. I'm pretty sure it was that one. Is that uh, Julia Roberts? I don't even remember who's in it. Maybe Professor Ann Lee would write. What did you who get was up in to it? Eat? You got through eat? Did you get up to prayer? You were done no, by I don't, Julia Roberts. Right. She goes to Tuscany or something? 
I don't know. I can't. I can barely remember the movies I just saw last week, much less remember things that I walked out of. I think I walked out of it actually not because it was so terrible, but because I, I was, uh, I've got some kind of emergency call, and I, I hate people who go into movie theaters and don't turn off at a minimum their ringers. But, right. but I had to vibrate on and it vibrated and uh i walked out and i found out it was something important okay. italy india indonesia well i'm sorry no I'm, I'm just i'm doing what i shouldn't do i'm looking at the chat and yes. Anne lee has said italy india indonesia the three eyes yeah it's not like the three p's that's my book your this book is, is the, the three eyes P, your th is the three P's. Yeah. And I won't do a three poos joke as a sequel. I won't do that joke. Okay, you don't have to. I, nobody's going to do it. No, I have, uh, in the conversation we're about to have, I may discuss an important fact about poop. I might. Okay. Won't be the first time. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, Manhattan Serenade. Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey's song. Yeah. Everybody should go to whatever app you're using and listen to Manhattan Serenade and then email me after you've listened to Manhattan Serenade and tell me why I asked you to listen to Manhattan Serenade. It blew me away. It, it, it absolutely blew me away. Tommy Dorsey, Manhattan Serenade. All my listeners will be blown away when they hear this song for a very specific reason. So I'll listen. Do you know? Do you, have you ever heard Manhattan Serenade? Yes, but I, I can't imagine what I may have missed. But I will listen very, very carefully. Okay. My father used to have the only records he had: a couple of Tommy Dorsey records, a couple of. Uh, 101 strings which is why it took me a long time to actually like songwriters because i just thought music was just instrumental and a couple of broadway plays that's all he had uh i, I was gonna make a joke about 101 strings and kate smith's tampon but yeah but would that would shock me but he complained one of the listeners <laughs> complained. I, I said, George W. Bush had so many strings pulled for him. His name should have been Tampon. And I was told <laughs> it was misogynistic. Really? Yeah. Who I told you that? Somebody wrote to me and said, yeah. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm just shocked that you would say something as misogynistic as that. And I thought, mm. why can't I say Tampon? I'm not. How is that? I don't know. Look, I mean, I, I, go ahead. I mean, I'm no, sure it's offensive. Yeah, it probably is. But it's kind of like Bill Maher, who, for some inexplicable reason, has been hired by CNN to do a show, I think, on Sunday nights. He dropped the F-bomb right on the show, caught himself and then said, oh, I forgot this is CNN. So you can make those mistakes. Right. But he didn't make a mistake. He he knew what he was doing. 
<clears throat> he did that on purpose. Did he really? Oh, yeah. He's too smart. Huh. And the Kate Smith joke was misogynistic. Yeah. But the other one wasn't. No, probably not. We're meandering. Have you noticed? No, I do notice. It's, okay, so, uh, it's okay. fun, but um, yeah, we're the, we're we're okay. Let's okay, talk about let's, the let's talk about the Republicans. Okay, which ones? The ones that uh, here's my favorite Republican of the week, of course, is Nikki Haley. Nikki mm -hmm. Haley, who has, in my view, absolutely no chance of ever becoming the Republican nominee for all kinds of reasons, including the misogyny of the average Republican. But that aside, here is a woman who announces she's running for president. She goes on Hannity's show the same night. And when Hannity tries desperately to get her to answer one simple question, which is, how is your platform different from Donald Trump's? She literally, he asks her at least three times. She doesn't come up with an answer. She talks about generational change, but she doesn't ever talk about any difference that she actually has with Donald Trump. She's pretty disgraceful. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, people who get appointed as um, ambassadors to the United Nations um, by Republicans are often just kind of weird people. I mean, she's not as weird as Art as uh, Alan Keyes, the African-American conservative who was of uh, the, the ambassador to the United Nation uh, during, uh, I guess, during the Reagan years. But I mean, he, whoa, whoa, that whoa, guy whoa. was. Gene Kirk, I thought it was Gene Kirkpatrick. She, he, no, no, he, no, no. She was there with Reagan. And then Alan Keyes replaced Alan, Alan Keyes replaced her. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You're right. You're right. Wow. But, you know, he, he was, he was a, a loony guy. I mean, I used to be on TV with him and he would just go ballistic about everything. And he was married to this wonderful woman who once we were sitting in the green room, which is where, you know, they calm you down with uh, green paint before you go on television. <laughs> and, and she comes in with him. I had never met her before. He introduces her. She says, well, while you guys are on TV, I'm going to do a crossword puzzle. She did the New York Times crossword puzzle, the Washington Post crossword puzzle, and probably the USA Today crossword puzzle in the 20 minutes we were on the air. All three of them done. Mm -hmm. She ink? was a bright person. My father used to do it in ink. In ink. Yeah. Um, he didn't get anything right, but he did it. <laughs> he would do. He would do the Saturday New York Times puzzle. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like games. I. I don't. I don't do Wordle. I've never understood what Sudoku even is, right. and Sudoku, I, don't I don't like care. games. I just can't stand games. I don't like outdoor games. Somebody tried to teach me bocce. I. I I just don't like games. And you didn't watch the Super Bowl. No, I didn't. I actually went to the movies 
instead of watching the Super Bowl. Because I knew that by the time the movie was out, we could go have dinner and watch the last quarter, which we did. And it was pretty exciting. I don't dislike the best time to go to a movie is when the Super Bowl's on because all the (laughs) a-holes. That's right. There was I think there was one guy in the theater with us when we saw this extraordinary movie called Living. Bill Nighy is one of my favorite British actors. And this is a, a movie that got very little attention, although he's nominated for Best Actor for it. It's, it is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's movie. I think it's called Ikaru. And it's about a guy who finally decides he's not going to be a company man anymore. He's going to do something else. And it's really beautiful and wonderful. Hmm. I'll have to watch that. He's he's just an amazing actor. He is, absolutely. Everything he's in is fantastic. I'm glad we talked about the Republicans. This is good. <laughs> no, no, we're gonna <laughs> well, we're gonna get back to the Republic. You know what I hate about the Republicans? I I have been trying desperately for at least the last month to say the most insulting possible things without using bad words mm-hmm. with Jim Jordan. And Ronnie Jackson, who, of course, was the uh, the drunk uh, physician who worked for Trump and then later ran for Congress and has now been reelected, that I just think I'm hoping that even if they never see this, that the staff member who's supposed to screen all this stuff occasionally gets a laugh out of it. But I cannot get them to block me. And that bothers me because I want them to block me. I want that little feather in the cap. It's kind of like, I know you were talking about Pastor Hagee when you started the show. Um, and his he has these weird views about who, who might be the Antichrist. Uh, Jerry Falwell was once asked if I was the Antichrist, and he gave this answer to some major publication. He said, Barry Lynn can't be because he's not Jewish. <laughs> the Antichrist has to be Well, Jewish. apparently, because Hagee thinks so. Gay and Jewish. Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell and Hagee, they both think he has to be a Jew. A gay Jew. I don't think that Jerry Fullwell had that add-on, but he just said I couldn't be. So would now you've actually read the New Testament. You're, you're yes. an ordained minister. Yep. Do they talk about the Antichrist in the New Testament? Well, there are yeah, there are references in the Revelation of St. John. Okay. to the, the Antichrist. But then instead of just leaving it at that, of course, people then write, have written books over and over again about the Antichrist. And there's even a, a n- another movie that's worth seeing uh, called uh, Knock on the Door, which is about 
it's based on a very, very interesting science fiction book called uh, uh, The Cabin in the End of the Woods, I think it's called. But it's got Dave Bautista, who, of course, was in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and a couple of people, including one of the actors who was in these Harry Potter films. And the setup, I don't want to give much away, but the setup is these people a gay couple and an adopted little girl go to a cabin in the woods to relax and four people show up and they say from the very beginning, you have to decide which of the three of you will be killed or the world will end. Now, that's a good premise. That's a good premise. Yeah. And it, it the book's good and it ends very differently than the movie. But I think the movie in some ways is a darker. Now, now let's get back to the book of Revelations. Yeah. Revelation. Revelation. I have to do that. I had to do that with Stephen Colbert once. He he asked me a question when he was still doing the correspondence thing. And he said uh, something about the book of revelations and i had to correct them and say no it's the book is revelation it's called revelation mr colbert yeah i didn't think of that i wasn't sure you know when you do his show or when you do those interviews you think you're the good guy but you never are a hundred percent sure and i wasn't a hundred percent sure until i made some comment about he, he said do you do you feel odd doing this interview as it took three hours it was in a church choir loft in new york and um i said no i said uh you know it, to simplify my view of god god's everywhere and he said well is he i said he's even in a multiplex and then colbert stops the interview and says, let's work on this answer. And then you know he's kind of on your side. You don't have to guess anymore. And he said, well, um, hey, if uh, let me, let's go. What's a really bad movie? I said, Hudson Hawk. That was the Bruce Willis cat burglar movie. Yes. And, uh, and he, he says, okay, let's do that. So, and, well, look, if God's everywhere, including in multiplexes, why did he let them make Hudson Hawk? <laughs> I think that actually made it into the uh, the piece. Yeah. Okay. So okay, we so, covered the weaponization committee. Uh, yep. We covered that and uh, Hunter Biden. Very quickly, in the book of Revelation, yeah. there's no rapture. That was invented in America, right? Yeah. It, you know, there's a problem with... The way the death is treated in the New Testament, and it, it's one of the many reasons why you, you can't be a serious Bible literalist, because during the crucifixion, Jesus is talking to one of the thieves, and he says, tonight you will be with my father in paradise. He's making small talk? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, what are you going to talk about when you're being crucified? Wow. But then, of course, there's also the sense that it, most of the New Testament rejects that idea that you're going to immediately, you die, you go to heaven, and you're with God because you're waiting for the end of history 
And of course, there's all kinds of debates about how long and how much you have to wait and all of that. But you you don't you you're waiting for a physical resurrection. Everybody gets resurrected if you're a good person and you believe in Jesus. You don't go to heaven right away. And some guy on C-SPAN, you know that show they have on in the mornings where they uh, they talk about people. It, it's a great show, but it's the hosts are not supposed to have any opinions whatsoever. And somebody, when I was talking about something, asked me, what happens when you die? And I said, well, you know, the two schools of thought right in the New Testament. And then I explained what I just explained to you. Bodily resurrection versus immediate transformation to a heavenly figure along with God. Now, your wife is a doctor. Yes, she is. You're a lawyer and a minister. Yes. These are jobs. If Had I wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a minister, or a rabbi, right. I would not be equipped. I, I don't have the brain power to do the work to become a doctor, lawyer, or a minister. I'm fishing for a compliment right now. Yeah. No, I think you do. Um, okay. But I, I did want to, Oh, here's my question. (laughs) Go ahead. Here's my question. Sure. When I see Donald Trump's lawyer and Ronnie Jackson, who not only is a doctor, but an admiral. Yeah, I think he is. I'm thinking, yeah, I know you can be foolish (laughs) and be an admiral and a doctor. But you can't be that stupid. Do, can people get, can you become a doctor and then then become stupid? Does that happen? Or can a stupid person be a doctor? I think it, it's a lot easier to be a stupid person and being a religious leader or a lawyer than it is being a doctor. Because eventually you're going to have to work even if it's with other doctors that are older and wiser than you, you're going to have to do a surgery. You're going to have to do something very much uh, life and death situation. It's hard to fake that. People have faked it, but it's much more difficult. So I would get out of my mind any thoughts that you want to be a doctor and just Ronnie stick with Jackson. rabbi. I'm talking about Ronnie Jackson, Congressman Ronnie Jackson. Yeah, I mean, he's an idiot, but that doesn't mean he's not capable of healing a wound. Yeah, but he passed, he passed organic chemistry. Yeah, he did, probably. So that I means he's got brain power. But you can have brain power and still be stupid, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the number of people um, who it can talk a good line Somebody just and brought up Ben Carson. Ben Carson. He's another one. What the hell yeah. is he talking about? Why was he there? What was he, what well, was maybe he doing? Maybe they're savants. Are they, maybe they're just savants. I don't think. No, I don't think they're savants. I think that, I think that depends. That's giving him vastly too much credit. You know who is a savant, though? Since we'll never get back to the Republicans. My friend Tom Hartman, do you know anything about him? He's done the Ralph Nader radio. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely the closest to a genius I have ever 
I agree. I've ever met. And he's one of the productive genius, incredibly productive. He's he's blurbed my book as well. I used to love going on the show. And this is why he is so bright. There was a court case about 10 years ago where the question was whether wood chips could replace uh, be replaced by shredded tires on the playgrounds of schools, I think, in Ohio. And the big issue was these private religious schools, could they get the wood chips replaced? And it was the beginning of the end for the idea that you couldn't support private religious schools with taxpayer funding. And it seemed like a kind of a silly thing to even complain about, but I was on with Tom, I think on his television show, and he said, is our tires, I mean, aren't they more dangerous? I said, what What do you mean? <laughs> and he said, because there are all these chemicals in the rubber. And sure enough, you know, I went back and my researcher doing the book looked into this and there are major studies that say that Shredded tires are dangerous and have dangerous chemicals in them. This is what, and the guy is so bright. He's, he writes books all the time. He does radio and television. He put together his whole radio network long before anybody thought about Air America by going one place to the next, to the next city and doing a remarkable job. And he has a wonderful a column that he did uh, just uh, very recently it called I just had it right here um yeah it's called the horse and sparrow economic scam is back and he talks about how important it was that Reagan not only failed by talking about uh, trickle down economics and I uh, Laffer, the Laffer curve was laughable. And he, uh, but he went down back in history and found that the original idea that was being promoted that had the same basic premise you give people with money a lot of uh, extra money, and that will trickle down to the average person. This being Hoover? Right. No, it's, well, he, he, he talks about um, the the panic of 1896 was caused by the very same philosophy and then repeated by Warren G. Harding, who most people don't even remember was the president, in 1920. In 1920, the top tax rate was almost as high as it was in before uh, Reagan. It was 91%. So Harding took it down to 25% and is widely assumed to have caused the Great Depression, which Tom Hartman mentions used to be called the Republican Great Depression until Eisenhower was president. And so then Tom goes not just to history, but also to a recent study by the London School of Economics. And they did something very interesting. They they did 50 years worth of statistical uh, and mathematical uh, searches and data in 18 different countries. Does it create jobs? No. 
Does the gross national product per capita go up? No. Does unemployment go down? No. There is no benefit for trickle down except to the people who are at the up and are never going to trickle down. And I mean, that's why I just I just think he, the guy's uh, brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. And the, we have to wrap it up. The the whole cottage industry of economists like Arthur Laffer yeah. is based on there's a homeless family living outside my apartment. Mm. And I don't want to let them live inside my apartment. So I will pay somebody. I have a crappy little apartment, mm. right? But I don't want to share it with a homeless family that's living on the street. This is how I think. And I think I know morally that I should share my apartment with this family. I know economically it would benefit everybody, but I don't want them living in my apartment. So I will say and do anything, even though I know it's wrong, to, to not let them inside my apartment. And yes, that but, is writ large, that is what supply side economics is. If you want to understand sure. why people spew that stuff, the club for growth, exactly. why they do that, they're paid to come up with ways to justify you not letting the homeless family in your apartment. Yeah, and making tell me a lie. Good. Tell me a lie so I don't feel <laughs> bad. About exactly. This homeless family into my apartment. Yeah, but the difference between you and uh, the head of the club for growth is that you take it if you recognize what you what you're doing, and many of us do the same thing. Although I I don't think there's any homeless people living in my backyard, but you say it is government's obligation to do something for them. And the Club for Growth merely says, no, 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 don't worry. It'll uh, it'll get better for them. And they never take that next step. And they never are willing to give a dime to the same homeless family that they, too, won't let into their house. And when you get to know these people, you realize that the joy is in the cruelty oh, that they, yeah. they enjoy the fact that they're not helping these people. They do. That's there is, we can't, we can't I, you know, we anthropomorphize these people. They're not people. That's right. Go there is a, a friend of, a friend of mine, uh, who's Jack Klugman's son. Uh, he, so he writes a, for, uh, the New York times, Paul, Paul Klugman. No. We're talking about Adam. But anyway, Adam does make some movies and stuff and documentaries. And there's one coming out about spending two years with homeless people in Los Angeles. And it's an astonishing. I've only seen the trailer for it. But at dispelling these myths about who ends up on the streets right. of America's cities. Yeah. So. By the way, Jack Klugman's son and Tony Randall's son used to live together. They were roommates. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. Okay. Hey, you know, there's only 12 people that understand that reference. Yeah. But um, the way th <laughs> well, now, look, next week, I want to get to the investigations that are being omitted by people like Jim Jordan, 
and a comer that need to be investigated. This is the third week I will attempt to do this, but I allow myself to get distracted by it was a meandering. Yeah, it was was. meandering. I'll tell you what's going on. I think everybody I know has resigned themselves to it's February and I'm not going (laughs) to feel good till May. That's what I figure figure most people are thinking this year, not working for me. Things are just not working out for me. And uh, I find uh, I'm having trouble getting out of bed because it means waiting on hold. Do I want to get out of bed and wait on hold? That And I read about all these layoffs, uh, all the big tech layoffs. I'm thinking... Oh, you're going to fire 20,000 people. That means I'm going to wait on hold an extra hour. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this anyway. The um, yeah, I think. Um, but you, as you said to Ethan and his father, uh, you don't get out much. But how can you not get out on a day like today? It was 64 here in Massachusetts. I found it depressing. It's climate catastrophe well, yeah I, look, I, look, I open the window i go it's warm in february i'm saying inside this is, this is so depressing it should be bitter cold well if you were looking for a reason you can find it yes you can that's you can find it all right well i will uh, talk to you next week and uh please let me talk about these two vitally important investigations that are not being talked about Yes. I will do that Stay next. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. Only good trouble. And BarryWLynn.com. Follow him on Twitter at BarryWLynn. And April Fool's Day, yep. your new book comes out. That's right. Number four. It's an one, two, three. Yeah, it's technically, though, it's three books because otherwise it wouldn't be. Did you write piece. an ACLU handbook? Yes, I did. That was in the time before there was even legal research done on the computer. I used to spend every weekend along with two people uh, who lived in other cities just to write my parts of that book, that ACLU handbook on your right to religious freedom or something. But yeah, but that then I, I did two others, but this one I'm happiest with. Good. Yeah. See you you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.